exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Psalm 27. Now, according to a recent Gallup poll, unhappiness, unhappiness in our nation is now at a record high. It's reported that people feel more anger, sadness, pain, worry, and stress than ever before. Yes, in our times, we see a multitude of individuals affected. Now, numerous things, I'm not going to take time to go into all of them, but you know, you see them. Numerous things have contributed to this attitude about the general uh, emotions of the general population. But truthfully, humankind has been plagued by such trauma since the fall. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, what will be has been before. The reason why people are like this, like, like that, why those emotions pre predominate our lives is because what? Because of the fall. Because of the fall uh, resulted in us being alienated from God, our creator. St. Augustine, the greatest theologian of the first millennium, other than the Apostle Paul, he's quoted as saying, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. It's a sad world. It's a mad world. A cursory view of the history of the world easily reveals all this. Living in darkness, apart from their creator, people resort to all kinds of remedies to help them in their pain and their restlessness. We see it. There's drugs, there's alcohol, entertainment, money, sex, even constant noise. But as God says in Jeremiah 2, these things don't fulfill. God says they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We even hear this cry of desperation from people in our popular music. One well-known song that a lot of you will probably remember as I bring it forth still resonates after 60 years. It starts off saying, help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. So I assume there are some Beatles fans in here. But that song is still predominant in our culture. Sometimes, whether we admit it or not, we as Christians, God's people, when confronting the spiritual darkness of this world, we can resort to broken cisterns, can't we? The Puritan, John Flavel, he says, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. But the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Today, we'll be looking in this psalm it's a psalm written by David who knew where to go in desperate, when he was in a desperate state. This psalm has given Christians great comfort throughout the ages, and we today can still learn a lot from it. It's one of the best-known psalms. We do see in the Word that if we look at it, it's a psalm of David. Uh, nothing can be drawn from that, uh, that title as to when and what circumstances the psalm was written. Since a psalm of David is common to a lot of the different psalms in Scripture. But it was written against a dark background of facing his enemies, David's enemies, of which David had a share of in the course of his life, if you read, read some of the Old Testament. We see David was shut out from the house of the Lord in verse 4. He was just parting from his mother and father in verse 10 and was subject to slander in verse 12. For this reason, Charles Spurgeon 
great Baptist. Okay. He is inclined to think this was Doeg. Uh, if you read in chapter, same, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, Doeg the Adamite, when he spoke against David to Saul. It's a song of cheerful hope, perfectly fitted for those enduring trials, for us who serve and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I divided this sermon into three sections. Sections one through three, a confidence in God. Verses four through six, a desire for God. And verses seven through 14, a calling on God in exhortation. Now, as we look at the first verse in Psalm 27, David proclaims that God is his light. Not only this, but his salvation followed by his strength. Now, David is reflecting on God's past faithfulness and deliverance, giving him praise for the great things he has done. As we see in verse 2, David's wicked enemies and foes had stumbled and fallen. They tried to come up against him to eat up his flesh which can certainly mean physical harm, but the expression can also mean, have a figurative meaning, meaning to slander me. What David is doing certainly makes sense to us. How often in prayer do we reflect on God's goodness to us, how he has delivered us from sickness, given us comfort and grief, strengthen us who face ridicule in the world for being his children, and then out of our mouth as we're reflecting of these things comes exuberant praise and thanksgiving. Now, however, we know that the threats to us and our anxieties are not transitory in nature, are they? Tribulation and suffering are the way of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us that himself. We see that in Jesus recorded in John 15 verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He also said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And also, Peter tells us in his first epistle that we are tested through trials ordained by God himself. Why? Because our faith may be strengthened and that we may end up praising, honor, and glorying at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's true. Jesus never promised us an easy life this side of heaven. But as we will see, he would always be there with us. We are impotent. That means we are frail. We are weak. We are insufficient of ourselves. God, however, is what? Omnipotent, all-powerful. So what David is doing, Calvin writes, is fortifying himself beforehand as he faces another trial. John Calvin writes, It is necessary that the saints earnestly wrestle with themselves to repel or subdue the doubts which the flesh is prone to cherish, that they may cheerfully and speedily betake themselves to prayer. In other words, we are weak in the flesh. When we're in trial, in tribulation, we doubt. We need to reflect on God's word and the things of God to get us through those trials and difficulties. So as we read the first few verses, it's like David is shouting triumphantly, knowing that whenever God displays his mercy and his favor, there is nothing to fear for David. 
Notice that David does not say that God gives light or God gives salvation or God gives strength. No, he says the Lord is his light, is his salvation, is his strength. You could say it's a threefold shield to ward off his fears. And by the way, this is the only time in the New Te- Old Testament, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Old Testament, that God is called light. From looking at all of Scripture, light can have different meanings. In the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, light has to do with understanding God manifested in what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can also mean, according to John Owen, a great Puritan, the ability to discern and know spiritual things. Here, however, David is affirming that even in darkness, the terrible threat of war, he has no fear, for God is the light that can dispel such fearful darkness. Salvation and strength, as we see in Scripture, further explain this meaning. Now, the strength David refers to is not the kind of brute strength. Remember Goliath, one of his formidable enemies uh, when he was young? Not that kind of strength. No, this strength, accompanying salvation, is based on a very different foundation. It rests not on the conceited power of an arm of flesh, but on the real power of the all-powerful I Am. David embraces and trusts God's covenant promises that ultimately delivers us from our greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, which is death. As we move on to verses 4 through 6, at this time David wrote, at the time David wrote this psalm, he was banished from his country. His wife was taken away from him. He has no family around him and likely has very few friends. And he has none of the comforts of home. Despite all this, there's one thing he desires above all else. It's not the return of any of those things I just mentioned, but his one great desire is what? To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and behold his beauty. You see that in verse 4. Now, he used similar language in other Psalms. We read in Psalm 23 that David wrote, He would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There in that Psalm, it meant in heaven itself. But here it means the earthly temple. We see at the end of verse 4 that David will inquire of God in his temple. He's going to inquire of God. Now, when we get into heaven, when we get to heaven, we're not going to need to make inquiries in heaven. Because as Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, there we shall know just as we are known. Why would David say this when the glorious temple built by his son Solomon wouldn't be for years in the future? At this time, God's house was in a tent. The answer, of course, that it was not only the earthly temple itself that charmed David, but what? But rather the beauty of God himself. <laughs> it was the beauty that charmed David. The beauty of the Lord was to be found at the temple in a special way. He alludes to the temple because it was a symbol of our faithful God's divine presence, that he might, what, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It is the Lord himself he is seeking. Now, C.S. Lewis, a lot of you know C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, he, uh, he has some thoughts on this. Today, in our contemporary culture, we think of awareness of God or God's qualities that are totally apart from tangible elements of worship. You know, things we can see, touch, and it's right there. But says Lewis, for the ancients, including the ancient Jews, 
Religion was not like that. The tangible and the intangible were not separated for them at all, but they were rather joined. They actually seemed to experience God in the temple. Thus, their appetite for God was something to be satisfied almost physically. We read in other Psalms that going to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of the Lord was like a spiritual thirst of the people at that time. That kind of spiritual thirst that you read about in Psalm 42 when David writes, he has this thirst for God as the deer pants for the water brooks. We see this in Psalm 63 too, which is it's written, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Yes, we know in the New Testament, in John uh, chapter 4, remember the encounter, Jesus with a woman at the well in Samaria? We are basically told there that, you know, God worship, wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, the Samaritan woman is, where should we worship? Is it in Jerusalem or in the mountains of Samaria? Jesus says, no, God wants people to worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, there's no one place to worship God. However, commentators, James Montgomery Boyce and C.S. Lewis again, both write that we, in our modern times, have swung that pendulum, pendulum a little too far. We've swung it too far to the extreme and would do well to recover something of the Old Testament worship seen in this psalm. Now, it's true. We are to worship and praise God everywhere. Out in the Adirondacks, when we're hiking or walking around, we can worship God everywhere. But there is something to be experienced of God in church that is not so, so quite easily to experience elsewhere. Otherwise, why have churches? If it's only the instruction we need, we can get that well by an audio tape or a book. If it's only fellowship that we need, we can find that equally well, perhaps better in a small home gathering. There's something to be said for the sheer singing, singing of, the, of the hymns, the sitting in the pews, the actual looking at the pulpit, gazing at the pulpit Bible as it's expounded, the tasting of the sacraments and the very atmosphere of the place set apart for the worship of God that is spiritually beneficial. If we do have a laissez-faire about attending church or being with God's people on Sunday morning, if we have that, or it's optional whether we go to church, we need to do some self-examination, careful self-examination. We need to examine ourselves. So, there's something to be said about this. We read this in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. If you want to read along, page 1194 in your few Bibles. Where it was written by the author, he says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We look at the world around us. We see what the craziness going on. We see violence increasing. We see God being shunned. This is a time that we need one another. There's so much that I described just a minute ago about coming to corporate worship, so we should never, ever miss a Sunday worship, if at all possible. 
If we look at verse 5, David says that God will hide him in the secret place of the tabernacle. Now, if you remember something about Old Testament worship, the secret place in the tabernacle, that one place, was a place no one was allowed into this area on pain of death. Entering this most holy place in the tabernacle was only performed when? Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and that was only by the great high priest. And if you look at the Old Testament, the great high priest had to go through much preparation before going into that holy place. Now, if the Lord has hidden David there, as he says, what foe shall venture to hurt him? Now, with New Testament glasses, we know that Christ, Jesus, is the true temple or tabernacle, and his body is the church. The psalmist, again, David, he's full of faith, and he trusts the Lord, being confident. He's sure of God's protection and his ultimate victory. He knows he's blessed and proclaims a vow. We see in verse 6, he proclaims this vow, repeating it for emphasis while confirming it, that he will offer sacrifices of joy and sing praises to the Lord. In Scripture, when you repeat something, it means emphasis, like we would use the word very. He's, it means more emphasis, that he will sing sacrifices of joy and sing praises, or offer sacrifices and sing praises. At this time, David knows that God has chosen him to be the eventual king of Israel. He knew he was going to be king someday. Notice he's not longing for that day. He doesn't speak of having a future party in his palace, nor does he talk about having a celebration feast in his banquet halls. No. He says he will sing. A most natural mode of expressing thankfulness. He will sing for all to hear in God's earthly tabernacle. For us, that is the church. Moving on to verse 7. As we look at verse 7, the psalmist now brings forth an abrupt change in his language in Scripture and the, the change in the scripture in his writing. His mood changes from exuberant confidence to an earnest request from God. Notice that he cries with an urgency as if he may move God to sooner protect him. Now many of you can probably attest to this kind of circumstances. When you are in communion with the Lord, when your emotions or our emotions run deep and you cry out. So that tells us that even having a strong confidence in God does not cancel out the need for prayer. We should always pray. We can exam uh, see examples of these kind of prayers. Uh, I'm not going to go to them now, but just if you want to refer to them later in your own time, I'm in a couple of scripture passages. 2 Kings 4.19. That's when Jerusalem was threatened by the Assyrians. So who was, Hezekiah was given a prayer in that passage. It's a wonderful prayer that I would um, beseech you to um, you know, maybe look at after the service. Another one is Nehemiah, when he's living in exile in Babylon, when he's hearing about the sorry state of Jerusalem. That's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. David, again, he knows that his very life is in the hands of God when he refers to him again as what? The God of his salvation. That's in verse 9. In verse 8, before that, though, we are told that he would have the, if he would have the Lord hear our voice, we must be careful to respond to God's voice. For the one who trusts in the Lord, his voice is very effectual. 
where other voices around us may fail. Notice David's response to God's command to seek. He immediately responds, says, I will seek. All of us may pray that we too are sensitive to the touch of God's spirit. Sometimes that can be in times of prayer. Sometimes with the spirit works in us that we need to go to God in prayer and we're busy, we have agendas, we have things to do. Don't let the spirits work on you. Go to waste, I guess is a way to say it. Listen to the spirit and go to God in prayer. Take the time, things can wait. So, in verses 9 and 10, David is praying for the future while again giving an inference from the past. He knows that if the Lord had meant to leave him, if, he meant, if the Lord meant to leave him at some point, why would the Lord begin with him? At this point, past help would be a waste of effort. David knew God's faithfulness. We see this in recorded in Scripture. If we go to the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 5, where God is recorded saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 10, 28, when Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they shall, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. In other words, God will not abandon his projects. That's us. And he won't desert his children, which is also us. Then we are immediately drawn to verse 10. That says, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Now, this is included because being forsaken by a parent is so deeply cutting and hurtful, isn't it? This should be the highest degree of love between people, between a parent and a child. However, so many people we know have experienced disappointments from a parent to some degree. Now, what do we seek from our parents? What do we seek? We want love, of course, but how does love manifest itself? We seek acceptance. In this fallen world, most of us experience rejection from somebody every day. Parents from children, children from parents, wives from husbands, husbands from wives, friends, potential employers, a young man or a woman that we may be courting. But God does not refuse us. What else? we ask from our parents we seek to be heard unfortunately many parents are too busy to to listen today is god too busy to listen when we speak to him not a chance we seek guidance which of us any of us knows how to walk so that we'll be kept out of sin and make progress in the way of righteousness we know more how to live our lives for god than children know how to avoid danger or take care of themselves or take care of somebody else we, too, need to be taught. We see David asking God for this in verse 11. The last thing that I'm going to bring up is that we seek protection. David is facing, as you could say, the bullies of the neighborhood. They breathe out false accusations. They bring out slander and violence, as we see in verse 12. He needs the protecting presence of God just as a small child needs his parents in such circumstances. David goes on. He says, he tells us that if he had not relied on the promises of God, living solely by faith in him, he would have surely perished. He says that in verse 13. How true is that for us and all the saints of old that have gone before us? We are God's people. The delight 
of his eye. Like many, like David and many saints of old, we are walking by what? Faith and not by sight. We, today, have the same triune God watching over us in 2023. You people are a seal upon Christ's heart. You are engraved on the palms of his hands. Your names are written upon his heart. David concludes with an exhortation to others to wait on the Lord. Being soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also to have courage. Then God will strengthen our hearts. Yes, a strong heart will give us a strong arm to go forward proclaiming God's kingdom in this fallen world. God is always with us. Whether he rescues us from our worldly trials and persecution that is coming in our world, or if he allows us, he chooses to allow us to die in faith at the hands of a wicked and perverse generation, we know that he will hold us. As Paul tells us, famous verse in Romans 8.31, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, so what are some things that we can take away from this psalm this morning? There are some things. Number one, we must not be afraid. The world is encroaching on us in their wicked ways. Yes, we may at times be afraid of losing our jobs, our family, our health, possessions, our very life. None of these things are guaranteed, but we have confidence. We can have confidence that God will protect us from all forms of evil and deliver us into his heavenly kingdom. He will make everything beautiful in its time. Number two, God provides us with light to overcome darkness. He is our salvation in which we are saved. With all this in mind, what else is there, what is there for us to be afraid of? Number three, our ultimate desire should be to, be to want to be with God. Like King David, our desire should be in God's house, to be part of his chosen family while walking daily in the spirit. Number four, God is our refuge. God knows his people. And if we are his, we can also enjoy the same protection and refuge which David has also experienced. Number five, we must continually praise God. When we think of God's goodness, mercy, and love, it should drive us to praise him continuously. And finally, we must what? We must actively pray. A close relationship with God is developed and achieved through prayer. That koinonia, that fellowship that we have with God, with Christ, is developed through prayer. Now, David, King David would not be called a friend of God if he did not pray constantly. But what if you're here today and you don't know God? Maybe you don't care to. You may think you don't fear much and you're doing just fine and the world's persecution to the church doesn't really affect you. Or more than likely, you fear much. But you're bound to determine to follow, to, to determine to go to those broken cisterns that we mentioned earlier in the sermon. Those cisterns, those broken cisterns that hold no water, that cannot satisfy. However, you must know that Jesus had a warning to all people that's recorded in Matthew 10, 28. A lot of you know it. Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We do have something to fear. And it's a bigger fear 
than anything we will face in this world. And what is that? It's a holy God. We live in a world plagued by sin. We confessed our sins earlier. We are plagued by it. It's both around us. It's in us. We can easily use, see this when we just turn on the nightly news and see everything going on in the world. All of us will face God's judgment on sinful man. Romans 3.23, a lot of you know, for all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God shows his love for fallen humanity. Well-known verse, you never get tired of saying it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 6.23, a great verse. Because we call, we, we talk about the gospel being good news. Romans 6.23, to understand the good news, you have to know the bad news first. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, God's own son came in the flesh in the person of Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life for payment for our sins. He was appointed as God's agent for salvation. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, we obtain the salvation by what? By faith. By believing God and his proclamation that he would save all and trust, believe and trust in his Son. David looked forward to the coming of Christ and believed on him. We look back believing that which is recorded in sacred scripture. If you do put your faith in Jesus Christ to stay the Son of God, you will also reap the benefits of being one of God's children, like David was, as we read today. You will be relieved of your fear of death. Well, your death will eventually come. And it is the sole source of all our fears, knowing that we are going to die. A source of all our fears and anxieties. So come to Christ, whom to know is life everlasting. Let us pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, bless, my, bless these dear ones here, my brothers and sisters in the faith. Bless us all, Lord. Help us learn from what the words of David, that you are our strength and our shield. If we are for you, no one can be against us, O Lord. Help us sing praise, exuberant praise to you every day. Let us walk in faith, proclaim the goodness of the gospel. Help us glorify you by our lives, O Lord. And we thank you and praise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Forkin Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.